You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Tim Allison, who is an entrepreneur who has started and scaled four businesses. At the age of 31, Tim walked away from one of the highest paying sales jobs in the country, moved to a tiny fishing village in Nova Scotia, Canada, and started an education software company the naysayers laughed at. Well, they stopped laughing when his sales topped $10 million. After selling his company, he started a podcast called Screw the Naysayers, where he has interviewed and amplified the voices of guests from around the world, including the likes of Jack Canfield, Seth Golden, John Perkins, and an eclectic mix of thought leaders, best-selling authors, Olympic medalists, and more. On today's show, we talk about what are the basics that someone needs to know when looking at financials? What are some mistakes that people make when determining the price of their product? How do you reverse engineer an opportunity or look at an opportunity to see if it's worth doing? And what are some of the opportunities for the next few years? This and much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. And remember, if you enjoy the show and like it, please share this information with your network to help other entrepreneurs out there to fulfill their dreams and their goals. All right, now let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Tim, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, Tim, I've been a huge fan of Screw the Naysayers, and actually, I was really honored to be a guest on your podcast. For our listeners out there, I mean, you've had an amazing journey. Can you catch us up to date on a little bit of, you know, Screw the Naysayers, your current podcast, but but a little bit of your career up to this point? Yeah, because it's it's a trajectory. And I'll, I'll, it's always a dangerous question, Sean, to ask a guy my age to catch up on my career. But I'll, I'll give you the short version. Like a lot of young people my age, my career started in corporate sales. And I rocked it. I mean, in, in the 20s, I was in my 20s, not the 20s. In my 20s, I'm not that old, folks. In my 20s, I was certainly the poster child for what success was supposed to look like. Got to the six-figure income by the time I was 26, which when you're talking the mid-1980s, that was in pretty rarefied air at the time. Continued by the time I was 31, I was managing sales offices in three cities, basically half of uh, Canada, which is, is where I'm from. And at the time, Sean was probably in the top 2% of wage earners in the country. Don't say any of that to boast because I did the logical thing and I just quit and uh, moved to a fishing village in rural Nova Scotia, Canada, which is where my wife's from, and much to the amazement of just about everybody and, and a lot of laughter, started a, an educational software company. We didn't have the term e-learning in those days. The World Wide Web didn't exist. We did have this thing called Fax Machine, but it was still a relatively new technology. Ran that business uh, for about 18 years, quieted the naysayers when, when sales hit around $10 million. Sold the IP off in that business around 2006, somewhere. I can't exactly remember the exact date, largely because that entire sector had just gone through a massive consolidation. It was before the time of the proliferation of everybody being able to get into e-learning. And it was at a time when developing stuff for the internet was so expensive that it was only the massive, the massive publishers basically bought products and companies just to get rid of it, to get it off the market so they could dominate it themselves. Spent the last probably 15 years as a small business coach and mentor. You know, I get my entrepreneurial background is fairly diverse. So I, I do a lot of things in that, but for the most part, it's been 
around things like helping people assess opportunities for growth, identify the potential of new products, and a lot in financial analysis, just helping people understand the basic financials that always make the difference between whether you have a business that creates wealth and, you know, in a future or ends up costing you money. And then when I was 60 years old, I slowed up a bit on that consulting and I decided to do something crazy again. And I, and I started the Screw the Naysayers podcast, which, look, I didn't know what I was doing, man. I mean, it just, I, I felt called because I was at this point in my life where I was so frustrated by so many young people just being told that it's all, life is about settling that it's about compromise, that it's about making a living, that it's all about the money. And look, I like money because in the current system that we have, I need it in order to do the things that I want to do and have the kind of experiences. But I don't want my life's decisions to be driven by it. My view has always been there's lots of different ways to make money. So let's create a life and a business that aligns with the, the things we really value. And that was my story of us leaving the city where I wasn't happy living in this rural lifestyle, creating a career that was exciting, that was well-paying, that was challenging, but still being able to you know, be a present parent and prioritize my schedule to spend time with my family and those kind of things. And the thing, I don't know what it is, man. I, the Screw the Naysayers brand, Sean, just somehow engaged with the globe, really, in a way that I never would have imagined. And so here I am, well, as we're speaking here and it's just a little over two years in. I'm 300 episodes or so in. I've talked to the likes of Jack Canfield from Chicken Soup for Your Soul and Seth Godin and Kelty Knight from Entertainment Tonight, who's even right now has a, her book is number four on the New York Times bestsellers list, but I got to her recently. I've just had such a list of, of people I've had an opportunity to learn from. So life's great, and I'm just looking forward to what the next 20 years holds. Now, Tim, all that information you just said right there, I'm thinking four or five different areas to go into some <laughs> questions. And one thing I really want to hit is analyzing financials for companies. But even before that, you'd mentioned early 20s, you're making six figures. This is in the 80s. How has sales changed over the years? Because the companies I deal with mostly, early stage startups, they have a few engineers. They don't have any salespeople. In their yeah. mind, it's just build the perfect product, get it out there. What has changed in sales? There are certainly things that have changed, and not the least of which is that our customers are way more educated. And they can talk to our other customers quite easily. Like if we have people that are dissatisfied with us, it's pretty easy for people to express their opinions about our, about our business. What has changed, Sean, and I, what I think is a, a problem for most of these people you're talking about, the people who've got brilliant ideas and know what they want to achieve. But the art of networking, the art of building relationships, the art of realizing that it's used, almost overused, but the idea that people buy from folks that they, that they know, like, and trust is for sure still the case today. And, and so, like, I look at, we've chatted a bit off air about some of the other things I've got going on and a summit that I've got going on right now. We're reaching, I'm reaching people from this little fishing village without having to travel around on business or anything else just by using my network. And by saying, well, who does Sean know? Who does Corey know? Who does Jack Canfield know? And asking and getting on with those things. And I just think that people have, we've started to think of sales as a numbers game, especially all this nonsense about funnels. And it's all about just chucking as much stuff into the top of the funnel. So as long as we put enough in the top, 
that the number of customers we're looking for is going to come out the bottom. There's no predicting that anything's going to come out the bottom if you're not putting the right people into your into your funnel. And I think technology has made a lot of people in sales lose sight of the fact that your customers are people. And so we've got to identify the people we want to do business with in the organizations that we want to do business with and figure out how we can approach them. And the people that are, the sales reps that are doing that, there's a young man named Dale Dupre who has a podcast and his business is called The Sales Rebellion. And I couldn't recommend Dale more highly in terms of a podcast to follow and somebody to reach out out to, but he's just a young guy. And his background was in copier sales, but his dad had owned a copier, a business basically selling copiers. So very competitive business type of thing. And Dale started working for him. And the model in those days, it was like the Xerox-based model was just very similar to the way they taught people to sell life insurance back for many years. All you had to do was have like a fixed number of like 30 conversations in a week about copiers. And if 30 conversations got you 10 appointments, then those 10 appointments would get you three sales. And everybody was just on this, get as many of these conversations. And Dale looked at it and he said, that's stupid because 27 out of the 30 people that I'm talking to aren't buying from me. So he started really focusing on the individuals and the businesses that he really wanted to do business with. And he created relationships. He dropped gifts off for the gatekeepers who were the secretaries. He just... He sent weird emails with things in the mail that had puzzles in them and stuff like that. So finally, somebody said, who sent this? And then he just did so many things to try and establish human connections. He got this reputation. They called him the copier warrior because he was making like five times as much money as everybody else. You know, his dad recently passed and he decided to that it was about more than copiers. And he started this sales rebellion. And I just love the guy. No vested interest here, got folks. I'm not getting anything for it, but... He's an example of a young guy who figured out that his generation have really lost that ability to make those human connections. And that's what sales is about. That's what getting money is about. That's what getting financing is about. That's what getting partners is about. It's about relationships. And this stuff, I think, is something that, that's, that differentiates the companies that are killing it are the ones that have somebody within their team that have figured that out. That's really interesting. I mean, because thinking about the funnel and that when I've talked to people in the past, they go, okay, let's break down the demographics of this person. What's their favorite hobby? What's their book? How long they spend on social media, their age, all this stuff. They don't really say, okay, who have you connected with in the past that has a network that you can reach out to and maybe invite all of them out for dinner or online painting through Zoom? A shout out yeah. to Michael at Insperity who invited me and that was a lot of fun and we all bonded and I'm going to feel like yes. I owe that guy forever. On air today, the day we're speaking, I was participating in a summit I was telling you about. The host was talking to someone named Heather Moyes, who in Canada is a, well, she's a world-class athlete. She's won two gold medals. I mean, she's just an amazing public speaker. Because I'd been participating in a summit, I wasn't on air at that moment. But the other host noticed, I commented, basically. Heather said something about, just ignore the naysayers. So Tim being Tim goes into Facebook and comments, screw the naysayers, because that's my brand, eh? And then Corey, the co-host, comes on and he says, Heather, I want to tell you that I just got a comment here. It said, screw the naysayers. You used the word naysayers three times. I don't have to look at who it is because I know it's Tim Allison and you've got to go on his, his show. I would have a very hard time getting straight to somebody like that. She's in huge demand and charges really big fees. But there she is on air saying, Tim, hit me up. I can't wait. 
And it happens because of the things you're talking about. You build relationships. Seth Godin came on my show, episode 100 of Screw the Naysayers. Seems like a long time ago. It was just a little over a year ago. I know for sure that journey to get Seth started with my first guest, because my first guest was a guy named Don Wetrick. And I knew even then that Seth had huge respect for the work that Don was doing in trying to change and radically change the education system for high school kids and to promote entrepreneurship and coding and building of technology-based businesses. It's not a coincidence that after I'd earned some other, earned the right to make the ask, that when I was able to reach back and say, hey, Don, has been, I know that you've been on Don's show. Don's been on, was my first guest. He did me a big solid. These are the way you build networks because it's crazy the people I'm talking to from Nova Scotia. And I was thinking about it the other day, Sean, I'm not lying. I have only left my home village for business twice in the last two and a half years. The first time last October, I went to the city of Toronto to accept an award, a, a woman of inspiration a conference for the work I've done with my podcast and advancing uh, women gender equity. And the second time was in November, I went down to Cambridge because I was invited to speak on a stage at Harvard. And I thought I might want to do that. All of the other people, every other relationship that I've made, I've done from this studio, I'm looking at right now is nothing but forest and trees and blue sky in a village of about 300 people. That has changed in sales because we can make human connections without always being there in person. If you really look at successful companies, it always comes back to their ability to to build their network. The return on relationship I heard the other day, I hadn't heard that phrase before, but ROR, return on relationships. And I thought, that's a pretty interesting way of looking at it because I can trace just about everything good that's happened in my business back to, I know where relationships came from. And Sean introduced me to so-and-so, introduced me to so-and-so and those kind of things. I love that phrase, return on relationships. I'm going to start using that. That's going to be part of my daily vocab. Okay. And there's a couple other things in your intro of who you are that caught my attention. The pivot to Nova Scotia. What was going through your mind there? Because I know everyone had to say, hey, you got, you're doing great. You're going up the corporate ladder. You're going to be at the peak soon. And you're saying, no, I want to go to a 300 person fishing village where I'm guessing at that time you're moving to a new area. I mean, your contacts, your network you're starting at zero over there. What was that pivot like? Where we moved was where my wife was born and raised. And she has family roots here that can be traced back 250 years, which for white people in North America is about as far back as most people can, can trace their roots in North America. So there was that sense of connection. The challenge was this, is that I wasn't ready for the success that I had in my job, Sean. I was making a lot of money I advanced up the management side of things really fast. I had people working for me that were much 15 years older than me and had had a lot of success. Didn't necessarily handle from an ego standpoint what was going on. I found myself, like, I love being outdoors. When I was growing up as a kid, my happiest times were spent at my grandfather's little camp, basically on a little small lake, but where I was outdoors. And here I was living in Toronto and either driving in bumper to bumper traffic or hopping on subways or inside office towers. Once I got to work, I almost never went outside. It would be just down into the the subway, up to a client, come back in the subway, back, those kind of things. And and I was traveling like two weeks out of four. I had two kids under the age of five. My health was suffering. I was gaining weight. I was not paying attention to to my diet when I was traveling. Probably was abusing alcohol and those kind of things in those days. 
So, I mean, I knew I was miserable and I knew that if something didn't change, I was going to be dead or divorced within five years, maybe both, maybe sooner. My boss had had a heart attack. He was like 10 years older than me. And he used to say for years that, oh, man, I wish I'd been where you are, at, you know, at that age. And I'm thinking, well, crap. I mean, you're only 40. You know, he lived. But I mean, it, it shakes you because I, I was like a mini boss. You know, <laughs> it was like all of a sudden this doesn't sound so good. So there was that challenge. I mean, I just knew that I had given it a shot. The startup was interesting. The, the biggest issue that I think I had was that, well, two things. I didn't anticipate how long I was going to actually grieve the loss of my previous career because I had left the job thinking I hate it because I was, there were things that I did hate. And I knew quitting was the right thing to do. But when I got here, I found myself missing those moments of elation when you close the seven, $750,000 contract or something like that. Missing the camaraderie with my team when we'd had a success and we could all go out and celebrate. Missing the awards trips. I was fortunate enough with my wife to go to Hong Kong in 1984. It was still under British rule, but I mean, all paid for by the company and one and a very extravagant trip. I just didn't, nobody warned me that I was going to go through this sense of loss. And I know now that it's perfectly okay to feel a sense of loss for something you've left behind. You know it was the right thing to do, but it doesn't mean you, you don't have to go through that kind of mourning. So that kind of screwed me up for about six months. And then the other big mistake that I made was that I, even though I'd ignored all the people that said I was crazy to make the change, I did buy into the idea that I had sacrificed my career. So I found myself thinking, okay, I've done this for my family. I'm going to live in this community. But the best I could hope for was to make enough money to put food on the table and keep a roof over my head. And that's exactly what I would use to say. Well, what are your goals in business? To put food on the table and keep a roof over my head. Now, anybody who knows anything about mindset and business knows that that's exactly what I did for three years. And so it was like living paycheck to paycheck, except I was writing the paychecks and I was never quite sure those checks were going to be there. And so it took me that period of time. And then the intervention of a rest in peace, Roy Zabrick, a, a gentleman came into my life and became a tremendous mentor and, and friend. And I remember. I was in California, in San Diego, I think it was, or La Jolla. We were at a, a sales conference, and he was sitting there drinking a Tangray martini. I just have it vivid in my mind. And, and I, he was asking me, I was like 30 years younger than him. He was asking me what I had used to do and stuff like that. And I told him about my success. And he asked me about my business. And I told him how we were doing, which wasn't all that great. And he looked at me and said, what the, what's up? I said, well, look, Roy, I'm living in this little fishing village. I mean, I can't expect to be doing the same stuff that I was doing when I was in the eighth biggest city in the world or something, what it was in those days. And he said, why not? And then he told me a story that not any of the young people will have trouble relating to. But back in those days, Sean, we used to have to mail our payments to the credit card companies, a check in the mail. So he said, every month, Tim, I mail a check to American Express. He says, do you know where I send it? No, I don't have a clue. He says, it's either North Dakota or South Dakota or something like that. He says, I don't know. You think I care where I'm sending the check? I said, well, I suppose not. He said, well, why do you think anybody's going to care about where you're living and where your business is based? And it's really crazy because from that moment on, I started saying, instead of having excuses for not being able to do things, I'd say, well, what's the barrier? And I'd start asking, well, okay, but what if I tried this? Or what if I tried that? What might happen? How could I? And it's just, it's insane. And that transformation just, just changed my life. And that's from there for, for the next, we had a very good run. 
with my software company. And it all stemmed back to just stopping and looking for the advantages. And I had a lot of advantages. I ended up building my own office space, Sean, because I was looking around for a place to look. This is way back in the day when everything was off local area networks. So if you really wanted to have an office that was at all technical, you had to have your computers literally wired together through Ethernet cables. And I outgrew my home. I'd been working in my home. I needed space. I was starting to hire people. And I was trying to find a space that I could rent because the last thing I wanted was to be in the real estate industry. I couldn't find anything. Like the only thing I could rent were these old buildings that were falling apart. I literally bought a building lot with an old home on it that was falling apart. I had the house torn down and I built a small, like it was about a thousand square foot rectangular building, my own building, wired it up properly. But you know what? I I built an office for $40,000. Now I know, of course, that's those dollars versus mid nineties versus today, but it was crazy cheap. And then I went out and started hiring people. And lo and behold, I found, I thought I'll never be able to hire people who want to live in the country. Oh, wrong. The idea that I could, oh, I can get out of the city and I can come down and I can be five minutes from a beach and I can not lock my doors at night. And I can jog in the morning at the side of the road without any. People moved to the community specifically to work for me. I paid them way above average wages for this community, but I know they could have made more money in the cities. I mean, I just, just didn't fit the business model that I had. And then nobody ever quit. People just literally didn't quit because if you provided them the right work environment and respected them, gave them the opportunities to grow, made them feel part, made sure they understood how they were contributing to the, both the growth of the company and the success of our customers. I found advantages. I even ran a conference one year. I got, cause my biggest line item got up one year and I'm looking at my financials and I'm thinking, gee, I got to do something about my travel expenses because and I was selling educational software. The average sale was between fifty dollars and $100,000. Well, I wasn't selling that in my fishing village. It was all, mostly all across Canada. So myself and my staff, my marketing manager, our travel expenses were crazy going across the country to visit people. And I thought, what can I do? And then I realized I live in a part of the country that everybody likes to come to in the summertime. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful in the summertime when people get out of the city, come down. So there was a little community up the road called Digby, and there was this old, uh, kind of like in Canada, we have these railroad hotels, the big old, and, and this was like for, for seafaring traffic, but there was a place called the Digby Pines, beautiful old style 30s, 40s resort with the marble floors and the big lobbies and the chalets and ocean view and everything. And I ran something called the Digby Institute. And what I did is I invited, because I thought, okay, I, what I want to do is I want to sell to the the biggest school districts and the big and community colleges and things like that in Canada. So I invited the superintendents and the CEOs and the top person in every of these organizations. I target the places that I wanted to make connections with. I would invite them to come. And here's the deal. If they got to the pines at their own expense, and they could all do that because they had professional development dollars that they could, especially if they chose not to fly, they could drive and bring their wife and take the money and get out there. And I put them up at the Pines for a couple of days. I paid the hotels. We had a spousal program so they could go golfing or whale watching. We even took a half day for even the people in the conference to go golfing and stuff. Championship golf course attached to the resort. I brought in local maritime musicians playing the fiddle and dancers and going on. And we didn't sell anything. We ran panel discussions about issues around technology and education. And I got a lot of them to sit on panels and I would combine them with some of my customers who would be talking stories about how it was great. You know, working with Tim, 
and from then on, if I was going to travel or somebody was going to travel, we knew when we got to that city, we could get into the office of the highest level with the decision maker. I couldn't have done that if I told them, why don't you come to Toronto? They said, the last thing we want to do is come to a big city in the summertime. But to go breathe some ocean air and take my wife and, and basically it's all free because I fed them and I gave them the rooms. And then they used their, instead of flying, they'd take the cash equivalent. They'd drive, even if it was a thousand miles, they didn't care. So I don't know, I ran, but it's just about looking for the opportunities that are inherent in the assets that are around you. Okay, so Tim, we talked about the pivot, and I love the fact that you're talking about looking for the opportunities where you are. And I think that's so timely right now, especially here in Silicon Valley with all these companies now telling everyone just work from home. Some of them are saying indefinitely work from home. I got a feeling in the next year or two, people are going to be migrating to all different areas of the country where they can have a backyard, where it is yeah. safe, where it is clean. So I could see a lot of opportunity arising for people. And I mean, what you're saying right there was so timely. Now, okay, you had your business. I'm kind of curious about the exit. If you are up to talking about selling it. And then I want to go into talking about mentoring companies, financials. and But let's talk about the exit. So it was not, honestly, it wasn't overly lucrative, man. What had happened is that we had a really good run with a, a core product. I had partnered with a major corporation in the United States that had developed a, called Justin's Learning. It was a division of the, the yearbook company that's, I think, still out there. They had a product that uh, was one of the first integrated learning systems in the world that taught literacy and numeracy skills to adults. The problem was it could never have been sold in Canada because, for example, all the math was imperial measure, like inches and feet, and Canada's been using the metric system for since at least the 1960s. And the reading was, it was maybe teaching reading. It was things like learn how to be a good U.S. citizen, the U.S. Bill of Rights, the U.S. Constitution. And I'm not criticizing people. That it made sense for their market. What we did is we basically hired the Canadian educators and created content and partnered together to sort to create a, a version of that. We had a really good run on that. And ultimately, the sad thing that happened to that one is, which I think is really when I was getting to the stage where I probably knew that I would be winding it down within a few years, but I don't want to get into naming the corporations. Justin's had been bought by one of the largest publishers in the United States at the time, who then got bought by one of the largest publishers in the world who was based out of the UK. And they, once that came through, as know how this happens. I mean, there's just been a massive amount of debt that got onto the books. And in order to get rid of the debt, the only thing they care about cash. They don't care about profits or growth, or they just care about cash. And quite honestly, they looked at a rinky-dink little division that was doing like $300 million a year and, you know, was profitable and everything else. And they just got up one day and closed it. And it left me in a position where I had the legal right to continue to sell the product. But without the support, technology and things like that, I knew it wasn't, wasn't really going to be practical. So we sort of eased out of that. And then I moved into a phase of collaboration and we built a few of our own products. The last one was a product that we had actually built in, in affiliation with Houghton Mifflin. It was out of Boston, a publishing company. I think they're still around, but they were a college textbook. And we had actually created a program, built a program teaching life and employability skills, again, to poor adults that are perhaps had fallen through the crack a bit. It was on our niche at the time. And I just looked around, Sean, as that product was coming to completion, to fruition. And by that stage, my son had graduated from college. My daughter was halfway through her her undergrad, all of the money was paid for for that. 
And I looked at the future of the industry, and it was at that stage where as fast as a company my size could develop a new product, it was obsolete because the technology just exploded in terms of the way the internet was being used to teach. And I just didn't see a way to keep up. So in all honesty, I went to Houghton Mifflin and for a pretty modest amount of money, but I said, hey, because they were going to owe me royalties on that thing for significant royalties for forever. And I said, would you like to just buy me out? And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll just buy you out. And you know that was the exit. It, I sometimes think about it. I certainly had a goal of of not so much about creating wealth because it's, I know it's crazy, but it really never was about money for me. But I would have liked to have been able to uh, have kept the legacy in the community in terms of the kinds of employment I was creating, white collar software tech jobs. But to be honest, I just didn't. I saw a lot of pain. Just sort of came to the conclusion that was the appropriate time to realize that we had gotten everything we wanted. Like when we started that company, if somebody had said, here's the deal, you're going to get to raise your kids in this little fishing village. You're going to be, when it comes to your daughter's sports teams, because she was into basketball and, and soccer big time at school. So you're going to be able to be the desi- one of the designated drivers that takes time off work whenever there's a game. And in rural communities, sometimes you had to drive those girls 200 miles to, to go to a, it wasn't that far, it was 100, 100 at least a 200-round trip, easy. But I was the guy because I always spend the time. And so I was the dad that was in the car with those girls who, after a while, they forget that the adult's actually in the car and those kids that never talk to you. You're hearing everything that's going on in your life. My son was a, like, I'm a Canadian dude, so my son was a hockey player. And they played games on weekends. And Sean, between ages uh, his age five and age 18, when his minor hockey career ended, I did not miss a single weekend hockey game. And it was, didn't mean I wasn't traveling, but I would always fly home on the, on the Friday to be home. And I always, and it used to cost a lot more money in those days because there were these incentives. If you'd stay over a Saturday night, you could fly back on the Sunday for a fraction of the cost because nobody wanted to travel on the Sunday. But I would. And I always said, if my business can't afford to fly me home, then there's not a good enough reason for me to go make the trip. If someone had said I could do all those things, I can put aside the money so my kids could graduate college without any debt, that I would have been able to travel my kids around the world. Because one of the concerns that I did have, we live in a really small, almost entirely white, certainly in those days, entirely white community, one religion type of thing in the area. I was concerned about the lack of diversity. So we took them. We traveled the world with them. And we took them to places where they would see people, including across Canada, but they would see people dressed differently, looking differently, talking differently, behaving differently, you could get this understanding that we live in this really multicultural community. So th- but those were the things. So what, you know, the crazy part is when I say I scaled the business to 10 million and everybody says, tell me about the money, I don't mind. But if you ask me what, what's most important to me about the business, it was that I created a business that aligned with the things that I really valued in life. And I think to me, I was talking to a lady named Lynn Twist, and she talked yesterday, and she has advised some of the world's wealthiest families on philanthropy. I mean, some of the world's wealthiest families. I, I'm really. And she said, you know what? That most of them are very unhappy. They're not happy. I'm not, I'm not trying to dump on money again. It's not about that. It, but if we can earn money doing things that, that's purposeful, is fulfilling, and that fits in with the other things that are important in our lives. I don't know. You can't put a financial price tag on those things. 
Yeah, I don't know whether I, I probably rambled from the original question, dude, but that's Tim. Oh, yeah, I was, I was thinking you're going to go into more of the due diligence of the acquiring all that, but we'll ignore that. I actually oh. really like the balanced life because that is something you don't hear a lot. You hear people just going 100% in one direction, ignoring everything else. And then once yeah. they hit that end, they look back and question everything. So I think you actually your journey right there is pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, that you're able to actually have the complete circle, as Tony Robbins fans would say. Now you're mentoring and you're advising companies. So one thing that comes up all the time with companies is financials. Either before they get acquired, this is when a VC is going to invest in them. This is when an angel saying, do you have any of them? When you look at a company's financials, what do you see? What's visible to you? That's a heck of a great question. I, th- I, I want to start by saying this. The thing that totally shocked me was what I came to realize is that just about all the business owners I, that I was meeting, really didn't understand the financial aspects of their business. And it's crazy. Some of these, many of these companies were quite successful and others had gotten themselves into a mess and they knew enough to know that they were in a mess. They didn't know why. And so, you know, I think anytime, if if I'm taking a look, an objective look at a a company, I go for, I go to a couple of different places fairly quickly. I mean, I'm probably going to start with the margins. That's just me. It's kind of like when you watch Shark Tank type of thing. They want to know, do you understand your margins? It's crazy, Sean. I've met so many entrepreneurs who can't tell you the difference between a markup and a margin. And there's a big difference. And they don't know how to assess whether that margin is reasonable or has the potential to be profitable for for their business. I'm going to look at their liquidity. I I want to have... I'm self-taught. I mean, I have taken some graduate level courses in accounting and stuff like that. But really, this is stuff that I've just learned in the in the trenches. In the most simplistic way, the way I did it in my very early years in entrepreneurship, when I think of liquidity, what I used to do, I laugh about it now, but I used to look at my balance sheet and I'd say, okay, if my current cash in the bank and my current assets, like not inventory, but current assets, things that I could quickly convert into cash, if I add that, including accounts receivables, I'd add that up and I'd say, okay, how does that compare to the amount of money that I spend every month. My goal was to have uh, six times my burn. I could get to the stage where I, that was what I said. If I could get six times my monthly burn, that the world could follow my markets. My biggest customer could disappear. My major supplier could close or whatever. And I wouldn't have to lay anybody off tomorrow. I could figure, I'd have some time to figure out what I, what I could do. And I'm not saying I got there right away, but I did. Now I'm going to take a look at liquidity with a, a bit more sophistication. But I really just want to look at your what cash you're generating, where the cash is being spent. There's a lot of business owners that don't understand that all that the income statement doesn't show all uses of cash. And I know that sounds crazy, but they will not understand that things like loan principal payment, depreciation are part of the use of cash. But instead they, they say, well, I don't understand. My income statement says I'm making money. But I don't have any money. Well, no, you got too much debt or you know, too much inventory or these kind of things. And then I'm really looking for trends. Almost if I'm going to take any kind of serious look at a business, I just convert everything to percentages of sales. I don't want to talk gross numbers. I don't care about the numbers. Because I mean, how do you even compare? Like year over year sales, how do you really compare? Because just because a company's sales, for example, might have increased in a given year. If their margins went down dramatically in order to achieve that growth in sales, 
they may actually have made less money. And for me, profit is king. So I want to look for trends in terms of percentages. I want to look at what your gross profit margin is as a percentage of your total, of your total sales and look at those trends in the last three years, five years, whatever, as many as we can get, type of thing. It's the same thing with projections. It's the same thing if somebody says, here's a set of financials and I want to take this to an angel investor and I want to try to get someone to invest in my company. I've actually trained, done training for financing organizations that lend money to entrepreneurs. I, the first thing I tell, told these board members who were charged with doing this, I said, the first thing you should do is know that all of those numbers are wrong. Because there's nobody in the world that, that has the skill set that they can predict into the future exactly what those numbers are going to be. We can make educated estimates about our sales, about our expenses. So what you do is you challenge all the underlying assumptions. Okay, well, this is what you said your sales are going to be. What are the assumptions behind that? This is what you say your expenses are going to be. You and I chatted off air after I interviewed me on, on my show about someone who was in a software gig and was suggesting that they get away, but the competitor was getting like a 7% licensing fee. They were going to do it for three. Even in their mind, probably saying that's only 4%, which is still a lot, but you're saying, okay, so you're going to have like a 60% reduction in compared to everybody else, but somehow you're going to be profitable. That's wonderful. Why will you, you know, what is unique about the way you're solving the problem? That, and if you've got that innovation, then hallelujah, then we really got some. It's motherhood and apple pie stuff. I wish I could say it was really complicated. The thing that frustrates me, and I always qualify this because I do have a CA that I've blessed to run into a lot of years ago on for, as a tax advisor is, I think, one of the best in the world. But I really believe that whole industry, the whole accounting and CAs and everyone else, they have such a vested interest in complicating the process and making it feel complicated. And so much of the focus is just on tax compliance. They don't really care about whether those statements are, what information those statements are really providing to the entrepreneur. And they've convinced business owners that it's too hard to understand. And it's not. And honestly, if you're going to run a business, I'm not telling you you should be doing your own bookkeeping. But if you're going to run a business, you'd better take the time to make sure you understand the benchmarks in your industry. What kind of margins do, are we going to have to achieve in order to be profitable? What kind of wage costs can, can my business, as a percentage of sales, can a business like this support? How many times do we look at productivity? I, the productivity is another thing I'm instantly going to assess. People say, well, how do you measure productivity? And it's the easiest thing in the world if it's you and benchmark it. I'd look at your wage costs. And I say, as okay, as a percent, not sales wages, but the wages in your organization, I look at those wage costs and I say, what do they represent as a percentage of your total revenues? And then we go out and we get the industry benchmark data, and we find out you're competing against a sector where let's just arbitrarily take restaurants because it's a really simple one to the numbers and things everybody can understand. But let's say that industry average, not a best in sector, but an industry average restaurant full-service restaurant, wage costs are around 33%. If you've got, as a restaurant, wage costs of 37% in an industry where the gross profit, the net profit margins are often less than 5%, let me tell you two things. You either are way underpriced, and it could be, or you're not getting sufficient productivity out of your staff. You know, you've got people not move, moving fast enough or sitting around or, you know, any of those kind of things. And you can do that for any business. You might have to dig to find the benchmarks, but and the beauty of it is that you can also track that productivity on a year-over-year -year basis, and you can start saying, okay, well, 
or every dollar of sales last year, it, my wage cost uh, cost me uh, 38 cents. If they're 36 cents this year and people are still being well paid and they're happy, then you've done a really good job of increasing productivity. If they're 40 or they've gone up, it's the ability to look at those things. And you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to do that stuff. It's pretty basic math. Okay, you went over a ton of financials there. A little jargon, I mean, burn, uh, how much money you spend every month. If someone, say someone's very basic, they have a, you know, a PhD from Stanford in engineering, you know, someone, some basic, basic, no big deal. What, what would the financials be that they should look at or think in their head, like the most basic ones? You only need to look at a, maybe a half a dozen numbers. I mean, you, first thing you need to understand is the difference between the income statement, a snapshot of, the, of your revenues and expenses of your business over a specific period of time, like Q1 or for the last year or whatever, there's the balance sheet. And the balance sheet is the financial picture of your business on any given day. How much money do you have in terms of assets? How much money do you owe in terms of liabilities? What is left there in terms of equity for you? So in the income statement, pull out a half a dozen numbers or five, six numbers, pull out your gross sales. Like what are your total revenues? Pull out what your cost of goods sold is. In other words, if it's software, you're going perhaps going to have amortization if you've invested a whole bunch of money into the software. So what's showing up on your income statement is the cost of that the software. It would include software licensing that you might have had to, a lot of times we have to, you know, we got all sorts of software as a service things that are directly tied to our ability to, to provide the service, those kind of things. Look at all your other, what's indirect expenses is the easiest way that I would just describe it, which is just all of your, it's all of your wage costs. It's all of your, if you have an, if you're renting an office still in those days, it is any of the software as a service that's not directly related to client using your product. It's insurance, it's travel, it's meals, interest on, on any debt. Like if you're, you know, if you're paying debt back, all those kind of things. So gross sales, cost of goods sold, your indirect expenses. When you subtract those two sets of expenses from the gross sales, you're going to get your net profit margin. Your gross profit margin, you'll get simply by deducting the cost of goods sold from your... Again, it's just easier to explain if it's a tangible thing. If, if in a restaurant, cost of goods sold is the food, the food that they purchase in order to, to resell or a retail store, it's the food that they purchased. And then you subtract that from your gross sales, you've got your gross profit margins. If you could... But take that and put them in percentages. So if, if sales equal 100% of sales, they always will. That's 100% at the top of the page. And then what are my wage costs? Okay, well, divide the wage costs by your gross sales. What does that represent as a percentage? And a PhD from Stanford, they can do percentages. And all of a sudden, you get this measure. Everything's in percentages. And from there... You can track, if you're able to, you get some industry or talk to somebody that's been in your sector, who has got some expertise, get some idea of what people in your sector pay, what those percentages should look like for a profitable business. And then, of course, you can also track your own performance because that's how you spot problems, Sean, before they become big problems. Instead of the problem that so many people have is they leave their accounting. They assume it's just about a sort of a year-end tax compliance thing. God, it must be a very complicated thing to produce these things because the people we pay to prepare those those statements take about half a lifetime to produce them if it's anywhere in your in the Silicon Valley like it is in my neck of the woods. By the time you look at it and say, oh, crap, in the last 18 months, I had all sorts of expenses going out of control and I didn't see it. 
So like if you saw, for example, at your indirect expenses, like your basic office overheads and stuff like that, as a percentage of sales were really creeping up, then if you were monitoring that on at least a quarterly basis, then you'd dig deeper. You'd say, okay, well, what's going on? What's changed here? Has something gone up in price? Or one of the things that I guarantee you happened as soon as people went into lockdown with the closure around coronavirus in March, every business that I've spoken to, every entrepreneur that I've spoken to, went back and looked at all the money they, they were spending on software as a service. If they're anything like me, they were horrified at some of the things that they managed to collect and weren't really using or weren't using anywhere near to the point where the dollars could be justified. These are the kind of things that can get out of control, and yet they don't if you're kind of monitoring that. On the balance sheet, it kind of depends on on your business. You're definitely looking at your cash. There's something called a, I don't want to complicate, but a debt to equity ratio, which is just basically equity is whatever. If we took all of our assets, liquidated them, and paid off all of our liabilities and their loans, what would be left? That's ours. So how, what does that, how does that compare to how much debt we have? Those things are things we want to track. Inventory. If you're buying it and re, again, may not apply, but inventory is the, the type of things that are for technology-based businesses, like if they're assembling things. Man, if you get your inventory out of control, you can be cash poor. Like you can be making all sorts of money, but all of a sudden, if your inventory is not turning over as fast as it should be, that's an easy ratio. I know it sounds confusing, Sean, but honestly, that I've talked about it and we'll just put it out here now, but there is a little book I put together with a bunch of these terms. It's just really basic definitions. And then people just have to figure out which of these things apply for their business. And then here's where the accountants don't like me, is you go to your accountants and you tell them that you might, they may need to change the way they're recording the financials. Because for example, let's say a company has three different major product lines. And if you don't measure your, your cost of goods sold related to each product, you might have one that's that's losing, you know, you're losing your shirt on it and you won't know. In other words, you have to know the profit margins in to whatever degree of detail you can, or even category. Like, let's say we're selling in different vertical markets. I want to know how much money I'm making in, a, in one market over, over another, because, you know, all revenue is not created equal. And we can sometimes find ourselves getting so caught up in, I want to meet the top line targets to show that growth that'll make everybody think we're exploding and everything. But if it's coming at the expense of your cash and your profits, you're actually maybe better to double down on something else that's really profitable. And if you put more focus on it, I know I rambled, I mean, but it really is it's five or six things on each of those, the balance sheet and the income statement, and then get your monthly report. And if you do that in five minutes a month, you'll know if something's wrong. And then if you have to spend more time on it. Okay, now let's even go further back then say the company doesn't have any of this yet okay they, yeah. they they're not worried about you know just in time manufacturing they're not worried about their inventory right now they're just thinking we're building a product what can we price it at what's that mindset what's that conversation like you've got to look at how much it's going to cost you to run your business there's a couple of ways to do that if you've got a good line item budget if you've got the ability to say these are the number of people I'm going to have to hire and, and I know what it's going to cost me in terms of technology and software licenses and all of these kind of things. That's a good way of coming up with that number. You can also look at if there are similar businesses out there where you can get benchmark data, you can look at it and say, okay, well, I'm not familiar enough with the, the ranges within the software as a service type of thing, which is really where a lot of the stuff in, in the Silicon Valley is right now. I, I could find it. 
I just I have to go look at the ratios, man. What you want to do is understand pricing has to take you to that top line, that 100%. So if I know that my wage costs and all of my basic costs of being in business, licensing and all that kind of stuff is going to come to a certain dollar amount. And then I look at the end, let's say it came to $250,000 a year that I was just going to spend, whether I sold anything or not, this is what, what I'm going to spend. Then I need to go look at, at, a, at the industry and say, okay, well, what does an average software as a service company in this stage spend as a percentage of their total sales? Or when they get to the point of being profitable, obviously, you're not going to be profitable in the, right out of the gate. If your game is going to be based on a big volume, then you can't afford to make mistakes on estimating what it's going to cost you in the bottom end because 1% or 2% can, by the time it extrapolates itself out. So look at what those costs are and say, well, if I want to be profitable in three years or two years, whatever time frame you set, if that represents 35% of my sales, I'm just picking an average, you know, a number. You'd have to look at the end, pull some industry stats. Then you're simply going to say, okay, that tells me that if I'm going to spend that much money and that should be 35%, that my sales are going to have to be, and you can calculate it, right? I mean, just, yeah, you just do it like from that stage. And then you need to start to say, well, how many units or licenses or individuals am I going to need to sell? And it's just units and price. And you will play with those variables, but usually in the sector, you're going to be able to look at comparables. There are reasons why so many different products are priced in that 19, 20, 29. I mean, there's these scales all the way up. There are reasons for all, all of these things. And you've got to figure out whether you can price yourself in that range, what the volume is that you'd have to get there. And then you got to factor in, well, how much money am, am I going to have to, to spend to get it? But honestly, if you've got good industry data and you know what those base costs are, then you still should be able to extrapolate what the top line number is. It's just that what you'll find is a lot of people will come up with a their bottom line expenses. And if you, you have to validate your price, Sean. So if you estimate it too high, if you're the same thing, the person who said to you, they're going to come in and all of a sudden they're going to be able to charge a licensing fee with it was a lot less. It's the same thing in price. If you're going to be top of market or above market, then you need a very good explanation to what the value is that you got going on here. And you need an ironclad return on investment. You need to be able to calculate, which is the other thing at that price point, what kind of return on investment is my client going to get for that for that service? And you need an ability to quantify that. And so it isn't, it's always really hard to grab without having the one-on-one -on -one conversation. You could put some frameworks around it. You can say, well, I know that this is what it's going to cost me for my staff. And I'm going to go with a distributed model and maybe just have a small office or maybe no office at all. And because I'm in that bootstrapping stage. I mean, I bootstrap on my business. Then figure out what is the minimum amount of money that you're going to spend. What does it look like the, the market ranges on pricing? What's the minimally, to use Seth Golan's language, what's the minimally viable audience? In other words, how many customers do I have to reach at that price point in order for this thing to break even? And then how many would I have to reach in order to be generating enough money to repay the investors and all of this kind of stuff? It's, I don't know whether that answered it or not, but it's, it's an effort. Okay, let's let's take it even one step back. Okay. Put on your mentor hat. How do you go about reverse engineering an opportunity or looking at it to see if it's even worth doing or not? I'm going to make the assumption the work has been done to sort of validate whether there's market demand because there's really not a lot of point in digging into all of the 
the financials if we haven't taken our idea. Because, you know, entrepreneurship these days is about test and iterate, test and iterate type of thing. Eh? So, but if you've, if you've identified the problem, if you've had conversations with people and individuals that would be strongly motivated to partner with you or purchase from you, and you're getting the response that this is a real legit problem that people would are prepared to pay for a solution, you're definitely going to want to look at how they're currently solving the problem at all uh, right now. It's rare. I, I know we like to think that we're going to come up with the one idea where we're going to solve something that a problem that nobody else in the world's ever figured out how to solve. In my experience, if it's a painful enough problem, people are solving it in some fashion. The question is, you're trying, you want to solve it for them easier, faster, more cost efficiently type of thing. So you want to make sure that, that the pain of the problem is big enough that this is marketing. I mean, I know it's numbers, but you really need to be understanding if that pain is big enough and getting the problem is we fall in love with our own products and our own ideas. And so if we don't go out there and have conversations with people to do that, once we've done that, then you've got to go back to the numbers. So, I mean, you should establish, you should work with somebody or talk to us, get a mentor in the industry, find somebody that's done what you want to do and get an idea on what do the benchmark percentages look like. If I'm going to be charging licensing fees and or whatever it is, like what, what are the metrics look, what are the benchmarks? How would I be able to to compare my plans for my business to a, a business that would be pro- is profitable in a similar sector. It doesn't have to be the same one. That's how you sort of assess and you say, well, can I do that? And you have to really start to look at what's it going to cost you to create that solution. And cash is the other really big concern, Sean, because then the other thing is, is that how much, how long is it going to take you to get to the, because if you're making a really big play, the problem is, is that especially in software as a service side of things. I mean, it's usually a game that requires you to get the volume before you start to really break even. So you have to know how much cash you're going to consume, the burn rate or whatever you want to call it. And everybody underestimates that. Everybody doesn't take into account what, you know, what's, what's likely to be happening. I don't know about you. I know you, you're an investor and you dealt with others, but I'm happier if somebody comes in and has maybe really conservatively estimated how much they're going to make and overestimated how much it's going to cost. Because it shows me that at least they're aware of the kind of challenges we always run into and at the front end. But it still comes down to the margins. What kind of gross profit margin do you think you could get out of this once you're up, you know, up and running? You may not have any cost of product. If it's software, you may not literally not have any cost of goods sold. So, I mean, it's literally that you're just creating expenses. So that's why those businesses get so profitable when they scale. Because you do. Your operating expenses will increase because you'll have more tech support, typically more customer support, those kind of things. But they don't go up in proportion to the, like sales can be going way up and and that's where you get the spread between your operating expenses and your revenues. So, but you really, you know, you've got to plot those things out and figure out how long it would, would take you. And then honestly, you have to be honest about your ability to access those customers. I mean, there's just so many, I don't know whether you've seen this, but I, the folks that will come in and say, well, there's X number of people. In, in the old days, people would just look at geography. And they'd say, well, in the surrounding area of LA or whatever, there's this many people and this many people with this kind of income. And if I get one half of one half of 1%, I'm going to be rich. So therefore, this business is guaranteed to succeed. And the problem is I see that still today with the models around software as a service and those kind of things. People just look at big markets and say, oh, the market for this is massive. It's billions. I mean, we only need a tiny little bit of it. Well, which tiny little bit of it? 
And how will you get that tiny little? That's what when Seth was on my show, we had we spent about half an hour just talking about the, the whole concept of minimally viable audience, the game of advertising. I don't know whether this is true or not, but he's a pretty smart guy. He's probably smarter than me. And he this is pretty close to an exact quote that he gave me, Sean, on my show. He said, advertising stopped working at the very moment in time when all of us got the ability to access, had the tools to create our own advertising. And he's not saying that you can't make money with Google or with Facebook. He did say that, and I looked at the numbers, that it perhaps will change. But in 2019, Facebook took in $70 billion U.S. of advertising dollars. And Seth's exact quote on my show was that a lot of that was dumb money. It's money that can't be measured. He basically said, it, the moment you can't measure it, you're doing some sort of weird thing called brand marketing or something. And that's fine if you want to do it. But just know that if you can't measure it, there's probably not much of a return. So where do you see the opportunities in the next few years? So I'm going to answer in a way that may surprise you, but it's a topic that I've been on. I've been really talking about a lot on my show and with others lately, Sean. I think the biggest opportunities that we really need to be pursuing right now, ones that involve collaboration between boomer age entrepreneurs, experienced entrepreneurs who have both access to capital and a lot of entrepreneurial wisdom and a lot of wisdom about relationships and building networks and have networks and younger entrepreneurs who quite candidly have forgotten more about technology in the last five minutes than most of us boomers will, will ever know. And it's not that we can't learn stuff, and we do. But I really think that if we look, if we take that sort of mindset, and then it's interesting. But I've had some amazing guests on my show in the last few months talking about the way they see the world changing as a result of what's going on right now, first with, with the coronavirus, certainly with the, the George Floyd murder and the, the Black Lives Matter. There is this belief that there's an increasing number of people who are realizing that changes need to happen and that we need to build businesses that are in his name, John Perkins, who wrote the book, The Economic Hitman, was on my show the other day. But John calls it, it's moving from what the death economy, which is, he says, the one we're in right now, where it's solely the pursuit of money and it's the pursuit of profit over people, which is taking us down this path where if we don't fix it, Earth will survive, but we won't, to the life economy which are businesses that are, are sustainable, that contribute to solving big problems like gender diversity or lifting up those segments of our populations, whether it's Black Americans, Black Canadians, uh, Indigenous people in Canada, those kinds of those causes or problems around the environment create opportunities to figure out how we're going to use technology for humanity's good. Because here's my challenge to everybody that's listening. I put to you that if we looked at society for the last 150 years and we said, has society advanced or how have we advanced? I think we would say from a technology standpoint, it's exploded. The very fact that you and I are having this conversation, that I'm having a conversation with anybody in the Silicon Valley from, from Santa Claus, Nova Scotia, it's crazy, but it's just a simple example of it. But Sean, we can't manage our health. We got our healthcare systems that are spinning out of control. We got people, obesity rates, diabetes. We've got cancer rates that are out of control. We can't manage our mental health. We've got problems in mental health around our, the Western economies and anxiety and 
suicide. We can't, we can't even manage getting along together and seeing each other as human beings. So I know it's kind of a, maybe a vaguer answer than you were looking for, but I think it's to look in your heart and figure out what are the things that you really care about and then to gather around you people with some similar thoughts and then start thinking, okay, young people, because here's another really neat quote. Lynn Twist gave it to me yesterday, and I'm trying to remember the name of her foundation that it's escaping me, but she said, when it comes to the universe, our children are our elders. And they are. They're the innocent ones that are going to say, why are we destroying our planet? Why are we not being kind to that person? Why is that person getting followed or beaten or whatever? Why, why, why? And they don't want us to, to keep doing what we've been doing. So if I want young people. I, you know, I just think we need to find opportunities to re-engage. The, and I'm sure Gen X, too. I'm not trying to leave them out. But I do think it's the boomer age who have access to capital, access to networks, understand how to solve problems, can challenge business models. Like when you said, how do you reverse engineer a problem? I, what I probably should have said is my first five questions, what problem do you solve? Who do you solve it for? How do you solve it? What happens if the problem isn't solved? And why should people hire you to solve it? That's the business side of me coming out. My mind was more on the numbers. Those things just come as second nature to entrepreneurs like myself with 30 years or so of experience. Team those up with the idea people who see the potential of the technology. So it's not a sector. It's more the focus on the collaboration and and moving towards a life economy. Okay, Tim. I got to say thank you for all of this information. Your five your five questions that you asked right there. Those are amazing takeaway. The return on relationships. I love that quote. I'm going to be using it. If anyone wants to find out any more information about you, screw the naysayers, your podcast, what's the best way to go about doing it? So a couple of ways. So certainly for the podcast and everything I've got going on there, just screw the naysayers.com. And of course, in the podcast is called Screw the Naysayers. I also do have a, another website. It's called the Prophet Whisperer.io. I reference people there, Sean, because if they click uh, hit up free resources at the top of that page, I have a little book. I, I sent it out to you. You've had a look at it. It's called Demystifying Financial Statements. It's a kind of a read that anybody can read in a, in a couple of hours, and it's free. I do capture your email, but I'm not putting you in any kind of funnel or anything with it. It's literally just the, the way I've set it up for you to get that download. So ProfitWhisperer.io, ScrewTheNaysayers.com. And I'm on LinkedIn a lot, and it's Tim Allison with, with one L. All right, we're going to have all that information in the show notes. And for everyone that enjoyed this show, please share among your network, pass this knowledge around. We want to help as many people in the business entrepreneur community as possible. And leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you're using to listen to this podcast. And Tim, I got to say once again, thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Had a blast, Sean. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. 